This is African News Tonight on The Voice of America. Hello and welcome. Welcome to VOA Africa. Thank you for joining us. I'm Yeheyes Wuhib in Washington. Here's what's coming up on African News Tonight. Manol's children are usually very sick. They need urgent treatment. Some of them will need hospitalization and around-the-clock care. When they get sick, they tend to get a severe disease. They tend to die as well. That's Ilham Abdullahi Noor, the Ethiopian team leader for the WHO Incident Management System and Emergencies Operations on the impact on children of a blockade of humanitarian aid in the Tigray region. Details coming up. Also, Peace talks continue in South Africa between Ethiopia and its Tigray region. The U.S. orders non-emergency government employees and their families out of Abuja, Nigeria, amid a security threat. And South African investigators arrest the former head of national power provider ESCOM on corruption charges. These stories and more on African News tonight. We start with our top story. Warring sides in Ethiopia's devastating two-year-old conflict are sitting at the negotiating table in South Africa this week for their first formal peace talks. The dialogue is led by the African Union, which failed earlier this month to bring together teams from the Ethiopian government and the rebel Tigray region in the face of fierce combat on the ground. To brief us on the latest, we have in studio Abraham Zare, team lead from the Horn of Africa Service, uh, welcome to African News Tonight. Thank you for inviting me. So, Abraham, battlefield developments have a direct bearing on power dynamics at the negotiating table. So, Tigrayan leader Debrezion Gabriel Mikhail remains defiant, saying victory is inevitable. Tigray's commander, General Tadesa Warada, in a local media said, War will continue as they do not have other options but to fight. So, Comment on these. It's quite interesting. We have negotiation on one part in, in South Africa, and we are seeing these leaders, commanders, saying we are fighting the war. Again, there are also other parts. For example, today, uh, Ethiopian ambassador to UK, Ambassador Tafari Melissa tweeted, I quote, It should be noted that the country's sovereignty and territorial integrity cannot be subject to negotiation. TPLF should not be given a chance to arm rearm itself for another round of destruction, disarm TPLF, unquote. So you see this kind of di- uh, dynamism. Like So on the other hand, there's dialogue, and on the other side, as you said, General Tadesawar said yesterday, we'll fight till the end because we have no other options. Again, for the first time, uh, Getacho t- read that tweet yesterday from, uh, from, Ethiopia, from South, South Africa, Africa, disputing the economist's claim that the federal government is close to Makale says this is false. We are, they are fighting in Quorum. This also shows that they are also kind of you know, difficult to sit for, for peace. So who are we to believe? The Ethiopian and Eritrean forces, uh, uh, Y reports say, using artillery, bombardments and drone strikes have captured a string of towns in Tigray, including the strategic city of Shire and then Adwa, Aksum, and now they are maneuvering towards Makale. Uh, what are we to believe? On the ground, even yesterday, General Tadesawar, there was local media, he said the uh, federal government combined with the Trump forces are kept, have captured Shire, Aksum, and the Adwa, and they are fighting along Quorum uh, and other uh, fronts. So it's 
confirmed that they have captured those towns. And as he said, war has never stopped and it's going on all fronts, so still going on on the ground. And lastly, Abraham, Addis Ababa is saying it is working with humanitarian agencies to provide aid in the areas it has taken over. Can that be verified? It's difficult to verify this claim, but they also showed some photos, some pictures, even uh, other day, Ethiopia's communication minister, Legislatulu, said we have started uh, providing services to in the areas under our control. But it's also difficult to verify it through, through independent sources. Team lead from the Horn of Africa service, uh, uh, Abraham Zare, thank you for your input. Thank you for having me. World Health officials say conflict and an ongoing blockade of humanitarian aid to northern Ethiopia's embattled Tigray region are putting the lives and health of millions of people at risk. Lisa Schlein reports from Geneva. The World Health Organization says 13.1 million people in parts of Ethiopia need health care and humanitarian assistance. More than 5.2 million are in Tigray. Since conflict between the Ethiopian government and Tigray People's Liberation Front began nearly two years ago, Tigray has been in a de facto blockade. A recent five-month truce was shattered two months ago, cutting off road and air access as well as humanitarian aid. Ilham Abdelhai Noor is Ethiopia team lead for the WHO's Incident Management System and Emergencies Operations. She says 89% of Tigray's population is food insecure, and 29% of children under five are acutely malnourished. Malnourished children are usually very sick. They need urgent treatment. Some of them will need hospitalization and around-the-clock care. When they get sick, they tend to get a severe disease. They tend to die as well. She adds that 55% of pregnant and breastfeeding women also are acutely malnourished and risk getting sick and dying as well. Director of the Health Emergencies Interventions, Altaf Musani, notes only 9% of health facilities in Tigray are fully functional. He says routine immunization has fallen below 10% this year, putting children at high risk of vaccine-preventable diseases. He says that is particularly dangerous now when drought-affected areas of Ethiopia are reporting outbreaks of cholera and more than 6,000 cases of measles nationally have been confirmed. In Tigray and in parts surrounding, and we've learned this from COVID, diseases do not know borders. They do not respect those borders. So whether it's measles, malaria, or suspect cases of uh, anthrax, these things will move. And hence, our ability as a system at large to detect and contain them is vital. And in the case of northern Ethiopia, those systems are either stretched or non-existent. Musani says the WHO knows what diseases exist and what must be done to treat and prevent people from getting ill. However, he says the WHO has limited access to Tigray. He says the WHO is not able to get life-saving vaccines, fuel, and essential medicine into the area. He says those and other supplies that could make the difference between life and death cannot be brought into the area, and that, he says, is deeply worrying. Lisa Schlein for VOA News, Geneva. 
The United States ordered its non-emergency government employees and their families out of Abuja, Nigeria, following a security threat. The British, Canadian and Australian embassies also have warned their nationals of a potential terrorist attack. Residents of the capital say they are worried. Here's more from Abuja. Nigeria's capital, Abuja, is gradually turning into a fortress with heavily armed soldiers and police manning strategic areas following warnings of a possible terrorist attack. Government offices have stepped up screening of staff and visitors, and a popular shopping center has closed. In the past few days, the United States, British, Canadian and Australian embassies have issued warnings to the nationals of a possible attack in Abuja. Victorson Abwinson lives in Abuja and works with a public radio station. He says the departure of foreign diplomats has heightened the fears of residents. The security threat has destabilized the city of Abuja. Many of us are now on the edge Nobody knows uh, what will happen in the next minute. People are scared, especially when um, uh, those working with the UK and the US are leaving the country in droves. Uh, so that has worsened it. He said it has become difficult keeping safe in Abuja since the security alert was given. And now the safety of Abuja, that one nobody knows how safe uh, the city is now. We are only trying to feel safe. We are only trying to play safe avoiding some places to keep low profile, reducing our activities in the city centers that could be prime targets. Another Abuja resident, Joy John, described the situation as alarming, even though the Department of State Services, which runs security forces, has tried to calm fears. I don't feel safe as an Abuja resident. Yes, the DSS and the other security operatives have tried to come out with uh, various statements telling us that there's no need for us to panic uh, because they are on top of the situation. However, it would be best to reassure us, residents of Abuja, that they are really doing the work to ensure the safety of residents by making arrests. The Kuje prison in Abuja has increased its surveillance Earlier this year, gunmen attacked the prison and freed hundreds of inmates, including Boko Haram members. A security expert in Abuja, Isiaka Mustafa, urged residents to share information with security agents. This is not the time to start inventing and reinventing unverified information about non-existing crisis. I will want Nigerians to remain calm and be vigilant. The DSS has assured Nigerians that all the necessary tools will be applied to halt any form of security challenges. The Nigeria government have subsequently assured its citizens that measures are in place to safeguard their lives and property. However, the country has battled a violent extremist insurgency known as Boko Haram in the north for more than a decade. It also is dealing with a surge in violent crime, including mass kidnappings, attacks on hospitals and on public transportation. For VOA News from Abuja, Nigeria. On the first anniversary of the coup that derailed Sudan's transition to civilian rule, pro-democracy activists urged more protests against military rule as hunger and inflation 
throttle the country. The activists say they turned out in large numbers Tuesday to reaffirm demands for full civilian rule. As Sudanese struggle with every ever-declining purchasing power, many worry that three years after the 2019 uprising that toppled Bashir, signs point to a reversal of their revolution. Joseph Siegel, director of research at the Africa Center for Strategic Studies, discussed these developments with VOA senior analyst Mohammed al-Shanawi. Well, in fact, there were tens of thousands of protesters out on the streets of Khartoum and many other urban areas uh, across Sudan. And they, in turn, were met with force by uh, Sudanese security forces to try to get them to, to disperse. And it reflects the continuing dissatisfaction among many Sudanese with the ongoing military rule in the country. Citizens there continue to uphold the aspirations that they expressed in the 2019 revolution. They want democracy, they want civilian rule, and they're angry at the military for derailing that in the coup one year ago. And so, in essence, these protests are the public's way of saying they haven't forgotten and they remain undeterred for their aspirations. And, you know, it really, when we look back over the last three years, Sudanese civilian population has shown an impressive level of resiliency and commitment despite consistent resistance and opposition from the, the military. The cost of food staples has jumped 137% in one year. However, as Sudanese struggle with ever-declining purchasing power, many in the country worry that three years after the 2019 uprising that toppled Bashir, signs point to a reversal of the revolution. Since the coup, several Bashir-era loyalists have been appointed to official positions, including in the judiciary, which is currently trying the former dictator. How do you explain that? There is a very direct connection between the economics and the politics in Sudan. And we have seen a long deterioration in the economic situation as a result of economic mismanagement by the military for decades, especially over the, the last decade. You know, Sudan is now facing a $1.2 trillion debt. There's a shortage of basic goods. You mentioned 137% inflation for food, uh, for other prices. It's even more, up to 400%. And these were some of the same drivers that led to the 2019 revolution and the ousting of uh, Omar al-Bashir. And I think what distinguishes Sudan from so many other countries that are facing economic challenges in recent years as a result of inflation, COVID, and the Russian invasion affecting food supplies is that this has been building up for a long period of time. And in response, the military government today is basically recreating the Bashir era military government of, you know, prior to 2019. It's uh, reappointing previously disgraced officials. It's providing opportunities for Islamists who are a big part of that government to come back in. And you know, all these moves are trying to compensate for the lack of legitimacy and popular support for the military government. And so what it's trying to do is rebuild you know, the political coalition that kept the Bashir regime in place. And so when you take a step back, there's really a a remarkable level of continuity in that government between 2019 and today. 
And so this is only refueling the concern and determination of civilians who suffered under the repression and economic mismanagement, corruption of the Bashir government to resist the, the current Burhan regime. That was Joseph Siegel, Director of Research at the Africa Center for Strategic Studies, speaking with VOA's Mohammed al-Shanawi. Startups and small and medium-sized enterprises are changing the way Africa does business through innovation and technology. From agriculture, telecommunication, health, and so many sectors, young entrepreneurs are infusing vibrancy and energy into the African economy. Big business is watching and ready to support. Through the 2022 Africa Digital Innovation Competition, the U.S. Chamber of Commerce and its prestigious partners are providing cash awards and mentorship support to three of Africa's top innovators, chosen from 17,000 candidates from 50 countries in North, Central, East, West, and Southern Africa. The Voice of America interviewed the top 10 candidates from where the finalists will be picked. Here is one of them. My name is Ryan Katai. I'm age 26. I'm from Zimbabwe, and I'm the CEO and co-founder of FarmHard. By applying to this competition that was continental, um, it was a matter of us putting us on a bigger stage where we would actually see what the external environment thinks about what we're doing um, and that validation also proving to us exactly the potential that we actually have. For us, it really meant a lot, um, especially with the morale of the team, uh, given that, you know, it's, it's like a stamp to be told that what you're doing qualifies of all the thousands that applied this year. Uh, but then to me personally, it meant that we were on the right path and keeping on going on that path meant that, you know, we meant for greater things that we also envision as well. So FarmHeart is a business-to-business agri-tech startup um, that is focused on connecting farmers to retailers, restaurants, schools, and other companies. Um, what we're doing is that we're ensuring that our farmers earn more um, whilst also restaurants, retailers, and all other business that we're supplying to are paying less. By so doing, we're ensuring that they have an increase in household incomes and also find better economic opportunities as well through their farming businesses. Looking at the stories that we get from the farmers that we work with um, daily, and some of them even come to us after probably three months, some even a year, um, you'd get that it's not just about the money that they're getting through, but then, you know, we've actually improved their social lives. Um, you know, now most of them can afford to even come to Rari. They can afford to access health care. And we work with more women than men. Um, so you find that it, it's not an easy industry for a woman to be operating in and having to be working with them. We've also noted that it has it helped them a lot, especially when it comes to contributing economically to the country as well. If I'm the one who received the notification, we to tell my team. Obviously, my team is going to talk about us celebrating. Obviously, we're going to do that. Um, but then I think I'm going to give tribute to my grandmother. Um, she is the one person who really motivates me to wake up every day and keep doing what I'm doing. That, that will be the steps of what we do. Um, everything we do, we do it as a team because we believe, you know, we can't get anywhere without each other. So it, they're the first people that I'd inform. Then I'll get personal with myself and be happy. 
That was Ryan Katia from Zimbabwe. His company, Farm Hut Africa, is a tech company that helps small farmers with logistics, market access, and information on crop demand. Its goal is to increase household income and productivity. The company is one of the 10 finalists in the Africa Digital Innovation Competition for African Startups, organized by the U.S. Chamber of Commerce's U.S. Africa Business Center. Next, an editorial reflecting the views of the United States government. Every girl deserves to live in a world free from gender-based violence and discrimination, where she has access to quality education, health care, and future employment opportunities, said U.S. Ambassador to the United Nations, Linda Thomas-Greenfield. Indeed, these are the human rights of every girl. Ensuring these rights are protected is crucial to ending extreme poverty and increasing the shared prosperity of any society or country. Investment in girls' education benefits not only the individual girls, but also their communities. According to the World Bank, girls with secondary education grow into women who are better informed about nutrition and health care. They are less likely to marry before the age of 18, and they have fewer children. They are also more likely to work outside of the home and earn higher incomes. As a result, they have healthier, better-educated kids who themselves have well-educated, healthy children. Nonetheless, in too many countries, girls face barriers to completing their education. The World Bank warns that societies which prevent girls from completing 12 years of education lose between $15 and $30 trillion in lifetime productivity and earnings. It is important to note that the obstacles girls face directly impact their ability to learn and perform at their best. First, girls often feel unsafe while in school and while traveling to and from school. Gender-based violence is one of the reasons they may not finish their education. Gender bias in the classroom is another challenge. Gender stereotypes have a long-term negative impact on girls' self-esteem and academic performance, as well as their choice of field of study. Girls must be given the opportunity to complete all levels of education and to learn the skills necessary to compete in the labor market. They must be allowed to make decisions about their own lives and to contribute to their communities and countries. The United States remains committed to promoting and protecting the human rights of all girls and young women, said Ambassador Thomas Greenfield. We call on the world to partner with us to ensure that girls have access to safe food and water, to an education, to medical care and vaccines, and to a future free of violence where their human rights are respected, she said. We know that when girls are able to be free and full participants in global conversations, we are all better for it. That was an editorial reflecting the views of the United States government. Hello, this is Heather Maxwell, host of Music Time in Africa. Join me every Saturday and Sunday for an hour of awesome African music. Like to stay on top of new music trends? Breakout artists? New releases? Maybe you just love the classic styles and artists of the past. Or simply the sound and feel of a good beat. Whatever your pleasure, you can get it every week right here on Music Time in Africa. So join me on your local FM station Saturday.
Saturdays and Sundays at 1500 and 2000 UTC. And that wraps up this edition of Africa News Tonight. I'm Yehiyas Wuhibi in Washington. For all the latest developments on the continent 24-7, visit our website at voaafrica.com. On behalf of our producer, Mokbilia Baro, and our engineer, Justin Twait, thanks for choosing The Voice of America. Carol Castiel, host of Press Conference USA, VOA's Newsmaker Interview Program. Join us each Saturday and Sunday when we talk with authors, analysts, and policymakers who provide fresh insight on topics ranging from U.S. politics and foreign policy to science, culture, and global health. You can listen to Press Conference USA on the radio or online at voanews.com slash PCUSA. While you're visiting our website, be sure to subscribe to our podcast. We'd also love to hear from you. Just send an email to PCUSA at VOANews.com or connect with us on Facebook at Facebook.com slash Carol Castiel VOA or on Twitter at Carol Castiel VOA. That's Press Conference USA every Saturday and Sunday 